All right, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Grass with us and the flowers fade, but the word of our God. Let's begin now. Look with me at verse 4. This, these two verses are filled. We're going to spend all the whole service looking at these two verses. This is what the text says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, by the Spirit, that you would use this passage to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ. Strengthen. Lord, I pray for men and women here that don't feel strong but feel weak. That you would now, by the Spirit, take this word and nourish our souls. God, I pray for all of those that are not clear, even what they are, if they believe. Father, I pray that you would use this passage to open the eyes of those that are blinded by sin and unstop the ears to hear the beautiful music of the gospel. So we ask you now to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You're going to want to keep your Bible open to these two verses. If you have it on the phone, you just want to keep it pulled up so you can see it. Because all of our attention will be in this powerful passage. <clears throat> There's more power here to this passage than you might think at first glance. This passage resonates with joy. It, it pulsates with depth. To get it, we've got to slow down a little bit. Today will feel a little bit like a Bible study. We slow down and look, and look deeper. We've got to look for the latent truth, the, the truth that is there that you don't see for the very first time. You have to keep looking, and then there it is. We're about three weeks into Advent, and during this time we've been celebrating the coming of the Lord Jesus and looking forward to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And what is the, what is the meaning of that? What does Christmas have to do with us? What does what Christ did there have to do with you here? And how can it help you right now? This passage is tucked into an argument. Here at Hickory Grove, we do expositional preaching. What that means is you take a passage in its context as the author intended and then apply it to the congregation. So we don't just pull something out and say, hey, look at this. We want to go back. Where was it? Where was this passage? This passage is tucked into an argument that the Apostle Paul is making to this church at Galatia. And his argument is that the coming of Jesus somehow makes the people in that congregation and in this congregation sons and daughters of God. So that everyone who believes this Becomes a son or daughter of God. He uses an economy of language, doesn't waste any words. It's in clipped, sort of straightforward prose that, that Paul tells us how we can go from being slaves to sin and become actual, legal, legitimate children of God, adopted children of God. If you took a run and start and you're reading through the book of Galatians, you would get to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, Chapter 3, Paul tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. So that's Galatians 3. 
Then in chapter 4, Paul tells us how that transaction of how Christ becoming a curse for us on the cross that he described in 3, how that transaction actually saves us and makes it so that we are adopted. So that everyone who believes is adopted. Look, I want you to read this and think, so what does this mean for me? I want you to walk away in the rain this morning with, with a sense of, of loving Jesus more. I want you to be able to, to rejoice in the truth and the joy and the goodness of God found in Jesus. I want this passage to convince you that you should, you should trust him more. You should worship him, worship him more deeply. I want you to know the truth of it. And for all of you here that you, maybe you're not a believer or you're not really sure who, who you are or how you fit, I want you to pray, maybe for the first time in a long time, maybe for the first time ever, even as I'm talking, you could just start now praying, God, give me eyes to see, give me ears to hear what the Bible says. We focus our attention on the coming Jesus at Advent. This is how we'll say it. At Advent, God offers words of life and of future and of hope. At Advent, God offers you words of life, future, hope. So, so if that's the case, then what I want to do today, instead of having sentences for my points, I want to just use words. One word for each point. And see if we can hang truth on that word. Here's the first word. If you'd like to write things down, you can write it down. It's the word intervention. Intervention. If you want to put beside it, divine intervention. Divine intervention. Intervention. Go there with me in verse 4. You probably have seen this before. We've talked through this kind of language. But if you join me in verse 4, notice that sentence. And in that sentence is embedded a two-word truth that will sum up the whole gospel. Some of you already see it. Verse 4. <clears throat> but, put a comma there, when the fullness of time had come, comma, God. So you put a parenthesis around that little phrase, when the fullness of time had come, put a parenthesis around it, pull it out, put it over on the shelf just for a moment, take those two words on the outer edges and pull them together, and what you have is, but God. But God is the gospel. But God is the gospel because in verse 3, Paul says that we were enslaved. When you go to Ephesians and you're memorizing Ephesians chapter 2 and you get to the, the truth of the fact that we are all children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, but God is the gospel. Here in this passage, in the context, we are told <coughs> that we are, we are accused by law, we are enslaved in sin. We are accused by law. We are shackled by our own sin. We are whipped by our conscience. We are abused by guilt. We are slaves. That's what Galatians says. That we were slaves and at the advent, the coming of Christ, the gospel tells us, but God. This is our condition. That's not where we stay. When you read it like, like this, you find out that there is a, there is a divine emancipation proclamation. There's a divine announcement that the slaves are free. 
And there are too many people in too many churches, maybe in this room today, that for some reason are staying in the slavery of sin. The, the prison door is open, it's been unlocked, and you sit there and think, I like it in the filth, but are out there, then out there. But this little phrase, but God, tells you that you can forevermore be free. This phrase right here reminds us that the coming of Christ really is the turning point in history. In fact, you, you can make it so, you can say it so strongly. Apart from these words, but God. Apart from those words, life offers no hope, no future, no freedom. Look, it, if your soul is not unshackled by the two words, but God, then you remain a slave to sin. Now, it, it, maybe you can't, you don't feel like a slave to sin. Maybe you're a slave to something, a slave to fashion, a slave to money, a slave to sex, a slave to popularity, a slave to drugs, or a slave to success, or a slave to work. Or, or maybe yours is not like that. Maybe yours is a little more respectable. You can be a slave to respectable things. Maybe yours is, um, if your soul is not awakened by the phrase, but God, maybe you remain a slave to your own respectability, your own making a good impression, your own responsibility, your own good station in life, your own pursuing success for your children. You are a slave to that. Now, that, that, those are respectable things. It's just slavery with a better haircut. That's all that is. You're still nothing more but a slave. Still shackled, not free. And the gospel is the key that opened it up. This, this passage tells us that God has intervened. That's Christmas. God has intervened in Christ. That is Advent. Intervene. That's the first word. Intervention. Let me give you another word to roll around a little bit. You'll find it there in verse 4. It's the word completion. Completion. I want you to marvel at God's timing. Okay, let's go back to the phrase. Verse 4, remember the phrase, had but God on the ends. Now take the phrase, put it back in. Let's construct it, bring it back, complete. But when the fullness of time had come, you see it in verse 4? But when the fullness of time had come, God, what did he do? He sent forth his son born of a woman. Now there's a whole lot in that passage. We'll break it off into other points, but let's just stay right here with the timing. When the fullness of time had come. So we've got to think, at least I do. I've been thinking about this passage. Why? Why did Jesus have to be born then? Why in, why 2020 or so years ago? Why not in 1960? Why then? What was going on that made it that that would be the fullness of time? Well, a lot. A lot. If uh, you think, think through history, those of you that like history, let your mind go way back to what was happening at that point in history. Those of you that don't like history, uh, what is wrong with you? <laughs> but, but think with me now. Even if, you don't like, even, if, even if you don't like history, it is really interesting. A lot of theologians said this, a lot of preachers, commentaries that I've read, uh, John MacArthur, John Piper, lots of them have said there were several things that came together. It was the right time. It was the right time theologically. What do I mean by that? It was the right time because 
everything that is written about God, written by God about Christ in the Old Testament led up to this point. Think with me. When you open your Bible and you get to Genesis, you start that in January, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, by that Tuesday or Thursday or Wednesday, you are in Genesis chapter 3. There you have Adam and Eve having fallen into sin and separated from God and God cursing the serpent and embedded in that curse is the first promise of the gospel. Genesis 3, verse 15, the first gospel. You keep reading in Genesis, you have God promising Abraham that he would bless the entire world through Abraham. That's a promise of a coming gospel. When you read it and you see the law that God gives to Moses and the law that he gives has been served, it's done what it's supposed to do, it is the tutor, it has reminded us. This is what the Ten Commandments does, a couple of things. It tells us that God is holy, that we are sinners, and we need Christ. The, the law of Moses had done its work. When you read the Old Testament prophets, there are over 300 direct prophecies of a coming Christ. When you read all of that and you get over to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 that the coming of Jesus was the plan of God from the foundation of the world. It was the right time theologically. It was also the right time religiously. religiously. Two major religions... In the context of the coming of Christ, you have Judaism and then the paganism of Rome. The paganism of, of Rome was completely empty. It was bankrupt. I'm listening to a couple of lectures on, on early uh, medieval history from the year 300 to the year 1000 when Rome reigned up until 1400s. And, and listening to the religion in Rome, even though that paganism, I always thought, well, they had this worship of these false gods and they really believed. They didn't believe. It was all ritual. It was all ritual. It was empty paganism. Not only the paganism of Rome, then you had the Judaism of the day. They hadn't had a written word from God for 400 years. The temple and all that would go on in the temple is gone. The, the Ten Commandments are gone. They had this vague understanding and need for a Messiah. Paul write, uh, reminds us in Romans that creation groaned. It was the right time religiously. It was the right time culturally. This is where history sort of kicks in. You think about history. When Jesus was born, where he was born, in that region, there was one language that was sort of the lingua franca of the day. It was the language that everybody spoke. They spoke other languages, but there was one language that everybody spoke. It was Greek. Now, how in the world, in that area, how did they learn Greek? Well, 300, over 300 years before, a man named Alexander the Great came through, conquered everybody, taught them Greek, and when Jesus is born, he's born into a world that had one prevailing language. In fact, if I go and read in the original languages, I don't go to Aramaic for the New Testament. It was written by people that understood Greek and Greek would become the language where the gospel is spoken without a translator, and the gospel would spread, and God set it up like that. It was the right time politically. Right time politically. You think about where Jesus was born. He wasn't born in Italy, wasn't born in Rome, and yet he was born under Roman rule. Because the Roman Empire had 
conquered the, the known world at the time. They swept all the way across the Mediterranean into what we know as Europe, across the channel into Britain. The all-powerful Rome had conquered and subdued those nations so that there was something called the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. So you could travel anywhere. They made it so that there was a, an infrastructure, bridges and roads, so that quickly the gospel would not only have a language, Greek, it would have roads to travel on and spread throughout the kingdom. And God set it up. When the time was right, the time was right theologically and religiously and culturally and politically. And when you think about that, it reminds us, reminds us once again, that our all-controlling God works through time and history to bring about His perfect plan. He accomplishes His will, and He brings about His saving purpose with the gospel. So I, I've been thinking about this lately. Let's just stand here for a moment, turn around, look back over. I mean, it's December the 17th, look back over the year. Uh, you, a lot of you can join me and say, it's been, a, it's been a tough year. And think through all that you've been through, all of the ups and downs, the valleys, the hills, all of the good things and the bad, the tragic things, and you think God was in control of every bit of that. So it makes me, when I read, when I read here that when the fullness of time had come, that there are things that fit into God's perfect eternal plan, it means that I can trust him, Hey, you can trust him in adversity. You can pray to him in calamity. You can worship this all-wise God that is in control of time. In fact, <clears throat> in fact, the timing of your presence and this message was God's perfect plan for you. To, to bring you to this all-loving knowledge of God, to see Jesus on the cross, to know that he loved you, to put your faith in Christ. Two words. At Advent, we, we celebrate God and his intervention. That's the first word. We celebrate the completion in the fullness of time. Let me give you a third word. You probably already see it there. It's the word mission. The word mission. Let me show you where I get that. When the fullness of time had come, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Pay very, very close attention there in verse 4. God sent his son. You see the word sent? That, that's where we get our understanding of Christian missions. That's where we get our understanding of, of Christmas. That this is God's initiative. This is God's plan. This is God's language. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent. What did he do? He sent. Here, here it's good for us to think about Christmas like this. Because there are times when, you know, I don't feel like getting in the Christmas spirit. I mean, for the first time uh, in our marriage, 31 years, we put up a, a fake tree this year. Which I absolutely love. I'll put it in a box and do it again next year. <laughs> Probably. But what is Christmas then? What is, what, is, what is Christmas? Is Christmas supposed to be a quiet holiday? Is that, what, I mean, is that what this feels like? It's not. What it feels like is that 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. It's not a quiet holiday. It's a rescue mission. That God sent his son. God saw us trapped in sin, swimming in guilt, burdened by addiction, drowning in grief, and God sent his son. Jesus Christ comes on a rescue mission. Jesus, look, Jesus described Christian mission just like that. When he talked to the disciples, he said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. This is why we celebrate missionaries. That Jesus is the original one sent, and to follow him, we are sent as well. Sent. Why did he come? He was sent to get us out of the trap. Sent to get, to get that shroud of our own sinful selves off of us and bring us into a loving fellowship with God the Father and have freedom in Christ. I mean, you hear me describe it every single Sunday. We try to think clearly about the gospel. <clears throat> we put it in categories. God, then man, men and women, Christ, and then how we respond to that information. Always start with God. The Bible starts with God. So when we explain the gospel, we start with God as a holy creator who created all of us in his image. You have dignity because you have the image of God in you. We respect you because you have the image of God in you. But that image of God in you has been disfigured by sin. Adam and Eve created in the image of God, fell into sin. We are Adam and Eve's children all the way down. So we inherit this sinful nature. We have it. We commit sin. That sin is not just making a mistake. It's not, not just doing something wrong. When you read the Bible, you find out sin is a crime against God. It's a genuine problem. It makes it so that we are described as being dead to Him. Not, not far off, but dead. So, so when you read and think of the gospel, that's God as holy creator, man as sinner separated from God, there's the problem. Christmas is the solution to that. Jesus Christ comes and lives perfectly like we can't. And at the cross, what does he do? He takes the wrath of God. The gospel is that God killed his son instead of killing us. That's the gospel. Jesus dies in our place. God raised him from the dead. So you have God, man, Christ, what he has done is Christmas. <clears throat> so what good is that? It has to be appropriated. You have to do something with it. And what you do is to trust. You believe. You turn from your sin. You think, Jesus died for me. I want, I want that. I want his righteousness and the forgiveness that he brings me. That the rescuer, the rescuer has come and I want you to turn to the rescuer. Word sent. Three words so far. <clears throat> Three words. The first word is intervention. But God. The second word is completion. When the fullness of time had come. Perfect time. The third word is mission. God sent. Sent his son. Let me give you a, a fourth word. This is the most theological one. Number four is the word incarnation. Incarnation. You should get to know that word, incarnation. If you are a Christian, it's good for you to understand how we describe what Jesus has done. What happens at Christmas? It's the incarnation, God becoming man. Go with me there to verse 4, and let's break it all up and just sort, of, just sort of walk through it. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth, here it comes, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. 
Now, it's striking to me how in this one, one little verse, how much Christian teaching about Jesus is packed here in this one verse. Let's talk about it. Verse 4, notice the first phrase, God sent forth his son. God sent his son. You understand you have right here, Jesus lifted up as the preexistent, fully divine, infinite son of God. That there never was a time when he did not exist. Paul talks about that all throughout his writings. But one of the most beautiful passages that talk about the preeminence of Jesus is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, 16, and 17. Let me read it to you. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You understand that because Jesus is the infinite Son of God, he alone can bear the infinite wrath of God. That's why it has to be all God. Because he is the infinite Son of God, he alone can bear the infinite wrath of God for us on the cross. There's the full divinity of Christ. Let me give you something else you'll notice is the full humanity of Jesus. I'm going to get to why all this doctrine is important in a minute, but you need to hear it. The full humanity of Jesus. God sent forth his son, that's divinity, born of a woman. There's Christmas right there. Born of a woman. There is the Virgin Mary right there. The incarnation right there. It is the natural, normal process of being pregnant, going nine months. This young lady is really pregnant here today. Uh, I won't point her out, but you've probably already seen her. <clears throat> and she's hoping to have that baby today. I need her to hold on just a little bit longer. <clears throat> the, the normal, natural, normal process of being pregnant followed by a natural, normal birth of a fully human son. He not only was fully divine, fully human. The writer of Hebrews tells us that in Hebrews 4, verse 15. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, who in every respect has been tempted like us and yet is without sin. Paul tells us in Romans that, that sin came into the world by a man, Adam. That's how sin got here. So if that's the case, then salvation comes through one man, that is Jesus. So he has it right here, full divinity, full humanity. Let me give you one more, full. That is the full righteousness of Christ. So you, you see him there, this God sent forth his son, born of a woman, divinity, humanity, born under the law. That's the righteousness. Certainly being fully divine, Jesus comes into this world already righteous internally, but he lives in such a way as a man, he is fully righteous externally. That he wasn't just born a man, Jesus is born a Jewish man, went into the synagogue, there learned the word of God as a man, fulfilled the, all the laws of God, 
He lived a perfectly righteous life as a righteous man. Had he not been righteous, he could not redeem unrighteous men and women. So you take all of that, put, let's put it together, verse 4. The full divinity of Jesus, the full humanity of Jesus, the full righteousness of Jesus. And that means... <clears throat> That only Jesus is uniquely and fully qualified to be our Redeemer. And that's where we're headed. That's the fifth word. You see it? Intervention, completion, mission, incarnation, born of a woman. And here's the fifth word. Redemption. There's the word of verse 5. Join me there and you'll see it. He came to redeem those who were under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, to redeem those who were held captive by guilt, slaves to sin. Back in chapter 3, you'll remember that Paul tells us that, that we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned by the law. And that word redeem, that, that word redeem is a beautiful word. It's my favorite word when it comes to talk about being saved. It's a word that describes buying and selling. If you have a coupon, you redeem that coupon for some goods. If you go to the store, you redeem your money, you give a specific amount of money, and you receive a real object in return. Here, that word is brought into the context of salvation. And in this day and time, culturally, when it was written, you would walk down to the slave market. That's, what, that's the context, the slaves. And in the passage, what Paul is telling us, this is what Christmas, what Paul is telling us is that the the price that Jesus paid on the cross was paid as a redemption to purchase slaves. The word redemption means to buy out of slavery. Now, for those of you that read history, this is not, this is not the word manumission. Manumission is something different. Manumission is when a slave owner, out of the goodness of his heart, decides that having a slave is not a good thing. He releases the slave. Maybe, maybe he does it when he dies. It's in his will. The slaves are set free. And they are set free to fend for themselves. They certainly are free, not slaves anymore, but they've got to go fend for themselves. That's not the language of this verse. Read it, verse 5. Read it. To redeem those who were under the law. To redeem those who were under the law so that, here's where it's all been going, one cause, we might receive adoption as sons. It's the sixth word, the sixth word, adoption. Look, this is not just going down to the slave market and seeing a slave that's shackled and filthy and naked and purchasing that slave and saying, you are now free. This is so much more than that. This is, this is Jesus. Think about the Trinity. This is God the Son as the great emancipator so that God the Father becomes the great parent. This is God the Son purchasing a slave so that that slave can become a child of God the Father. That when you are in Christ, you are not just set free. You are set free. That's true. But there's so much more. You are no longer a slave. You've not just been set free. You have been taken from the slave quarters of sin. And you've been, you've been cleaned up. 
you've been brought, you've been brought to a home, you've been clothed in the joyful righteousness of your elder brother Jesus, so that you might reside in the mansion of glory with your Father. That's Advent. It's the words that remind us that God, in the fullness of time, came on a mission sending forth his Son, who was fully divine and fully human and fully righteous, and he went to the cross and purchased, purchased slaves. And those slaves have become sons and daughters of God adopted into his family. In Christ and his virgin birth, in his righteous life, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection. At Advent, God offers life and future and hope. As we think through that, I want you to join me now in just a moment or two of prayer and commitment. With your heads bowed this morning, let's go to the Lord. In a time of commitment and prayer, I want you to think with me just for a moment. For those of you that are here and you've heard this and for whatever reason, God has opened your eyes for the first time to see that you are still a slave to sin and you don't want to be anymore. You want to be free and a child of God. That gospel is a gospel of freedom given to us in Jesus. We'd like to talk further with you about that. It's more than just one little short conversation. It's, it's us discussing the, the path of the rest of your life. So this morning we're going to sing a song, and if you'd like to talk to a pastor, our pastors are down front. If you would not, if, if you're not comfortable with that right now, our pastors will be out in the lobby. You can, you can approach any one of us and say, I need to know more. Maybe you have someone that you want to pray for. and we sing today, that's a good time to pray. Ask God to set that person that's in slavery, to set them free so that she might become a child of God. Think with me. Pray with me, and then we'll sing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace you give us in Jesus. We thank you for the promise found in Galatians chapter 4. I pray that you would use this to strengthen your people, that you would bring back the joy of salvation as we think of what you've done for us. Think of, of you setting us free and adopting us. Lord, I pray for all of those that are sad downhearted this morning that you would use this to lift them up to see the joy and the goodness that you've given us in Jesus and I pray that this the Lord's day would be a day when when you rejoice in our joy found in Christ thank you for a good day today in Jesus name we pray amen